are listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. Diatonic spectralism, wandering, generative structures. Brian Christian is a composer and scholar based in Fort Collins, Colorado. He has received commissions from the Frome Music Foundation at Harvard University, the Lorelei Ensemble, the Emex Ensemble, the Aurora Borealis Duo, and the Playground Ensemble, as well as international music festivals. Christian is the recipient of the Fulbright Fellowship to Estonia and was selected as the winner of the 2013 League of Composers ISCM competition. He earned his PhD in music from Duke University in 2015. His scholarly publications on the spectral music of Claude Vivier have appeared in the journals Music Theory Online and Tempo, and he is the editor of the forthcoming Oxford Handbook of Spectral Music, which is under contract with Oxford University Press. Let's start talking about uh, your piece for flute percussion and electronics. Um, it's called Direct Your Step Further Along the Road's Course. Yeah. So, first of all, I'm I'm just curious about the title. The title sounds very literary to me. Is it is it coming from something or just your own brain? Um, it comes from Geoffrey of Vinsauf. He has a treatise from the 13th century called Poetria Nova. And it's a, a great treatise in that it's a treatise about how to write poetry. But each mm-hmm. section is written in the style that he's trying to describe. So the section on metaphor is you know, very flowery, lots of metaphor. The section on being very concise is uh, you know, very, very concise. And so he's actually applying all these literary techniques. Okay, yeah. Um, so you you built in his uh, his structure into your music. Um, I did, um, but this quote actually comes from it's an English translation, obviously, of uh, the Latin text. It's the part of the uh, uh, the text that's about uh, diversion or going off on tangents. Um, and so this part is actually talking about how you can direct your step further along this road's course and from time to time leap off to the side and kind of this sense of freedom and then come back back onto the road that you were traveling on and continue more or less along your route. That's really interesting. So how did that how did that come to play musically in the in your piece? Well the the piece is actually pretty open. I have time markings for different sorts of collections that the musicians can use to improvise, and they happen to all fall in B minor, which doesn't really relate at all, but it's all diatonic, and that intersects with some spectral harmonies and electronics. But everything is directed in terms of how the piece will progress over the course of the 15 minutes, in terms of here's this collection, here's this other collection. And otherwise, I don't really give a lot of instructions. I talk a little bit about trying to find a sense of directionality for the performers and having this uh, this image that will take you um, in one parameter or more in a very directional way across the piece. And these should not necessarily be coordinated between the musicians as long as they are directional for each of them. And then with the expectation that there will be this divergence, um, there will be this, and, and this kind of pushing outside of these collections, which are very, very carefully calculated uh, using uh, stretched and compressed harmonic spectra. And so I I want the musicians to feel free to do this, but I don't want to overly dictate that uh, process for them. Right. 
So when I was when I was listening to this and also looking at you know looking at the score, I heard I heard a lot of influences or or at least my brain made connections that I was interpreting as as perceived influence whether they actually are or not. So I'm wondering who are the who are the people or composers or musicians or or just artists in general who who are the people that factor into into composing like this well before i say anything i'm curious who you were hearing (laughs) yeah (laughs) well um i was hearing i mean just looking at the score i was hearing or or seeing rather someone like christian wolf sure uh i was uh, probably go a little bit more along the lines of feldman in terms of the sparseness but i could yeah i could definitely see that as well uh, I think less less the sound of Christian Wolf and more of the general freedom sure, or, yeah. or openness, you know. Whereas Feldman is pretty other th- other than the early graph pieces. Feldman is pretty, you know, strict in terms of what he's writing down on the page. Right. Yeah. Um, that if that happened, uh, that wasn't as conscious in terms of the direct re- reference. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I can totally see where you could uh, could feel that with the way with the freedom, like you said. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say, you know, if I was thinking as compositional, thinking about this compositionally, my two largest influences for this, or maybe three largest influences, are Arvo Pert, uh, Gerard Grise, and Claude Vivier. You know, I was talking with um, with another composer recently, and I mentioned that I was going to. Uh, I was talking with John Sokol. And um, I mentioned that I was going to do this podcast with you, and that's that name, Claude Vivier, is Im- immediately came up when I said your name. Well, uh, probably uh, at this point, uh, I've published a number of articles on him, a book review. Yeah. Uh, I'm right. writing the Grove Music Online entry, so I guess words uh, slowly getting around. Yeah, <laughs> you will. You will forever be linked with Vivier. Yeah, that's how it happens. But but uh, yeah, yeah, most exactly. of my research on Vivier has to do with his spectral um, harmonies, is the technique that he uses with combination tones. And this doesn't really use combination tones at all. Um, but what I do is I have a harmonic spectrum that is stretched very very widely, and then very gradually, actually in a stepping manner, much like walking down a road is compressed and a halfway point in the piece it is compressed uh, or it's no longer compressed it's reached the you know natural state of the natural overton series um, and that's right around six and a half minutes in uh, and it goes for about uh, two minutes long that entire section there and then it compresses even further and so that's definitely coming from grise like his vortex temporum the way he organized pitch structures he had right. stretched and compressed spectrums, but this is you know substantially more stretched and substantially more compressed, and so it's kind of the marriage of Arvo Perret's Tintinabuli technique and this kind of spectral writing, because what I do is I take the eighth overtone and I stretch it exponentially until it sounds like it's the sixteenth up an octave, mm-hmm. and then in the next section I make it so it's up in minor seventh, and then the next section minor sixth perfect fifth, perfect fourth, minor third, major second. And then eventually at the halfway point, you are uh, back at uh, 
at that zero compression level or stretching level. And so I'm actually walking that stretching down the natural minor scale. So once I've done that, and I said, okay, here's the spectrum that's stretched. Here are the intervals that fall within that spectrum. Um, and just the intervals, not actually any tra transposition of those intervals. I then said, let's use Arvo Parrot's Tintinabili technique. And I have this in the drones. And I um, likewise, I walk down a scale here, at B minor scale. And I have the upper Tintinabili voice and the lower Tintinabili voice around it. And then I find where these exact pitch classes in the drones will intersect with that stretched spectrum that corresponds to that section. So that even though the drones are technically in B minor, it's a B minor triad or has something to do with B minor, those tones actually, if you were to represent them as frequencies, are part of that stretched spectrum. And so as the drones referencing the stepping down minor scale in B, you're also having the overtones, uh, the degree of stretching is also gradually becoming compressed. And I think that's really evident when you reach that middle section in six and a half minutes, because that's when you have you know, gone down one octave, you still have another octave to go, but you're at that octave right. and you feel that kind of clarity of the natural overtone series. Mm. And so it's kind of this merging of the diatonic B minor world and the uh, spectral world. And then what I do for the acoustic instruments is I filter the uh, spectral harmonies and I say any pitch class that's within, I can't remember off the top of my head, let's call it 15 cents on the other side, of a pitch class in B minor, then you can, you're can you allowed to play that pitch during this section. Mm, yeah, because looking at the score, the the flute and the percussion, you know, they have basically the almost the entire range of B minor scale available to them. Right, but depending on the stretching of the um, of the series, and then however I had to adjust that series in terms of transposing it so that it locked in with those drones. Right. You know, you might only have three or four pitches available that actually lock into B minor otherwise. So sometimes you have a very rich palette with a lot of material over several octaves. Sometimes you don't have very much at all. Right, 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 right. Yeah. I think what I found most interesting is about this piece is the range of color, of emotion, of space that you got through, I mean, almost entirely through harmony and then ultimately through timbre with a rel relatively slow-moving texture. I mean, there are, it, it really, uh, it, it, I, I'm, I'm a pretty visual person, so um, it kind of reminded me of, you know, seeing, uh, seeing a flock of birds moving together. You know, it's just always, it's always morphing and, and changing, but it's never, you know, it's never drastic or sudden. Right, and I think part of that is that constant reference of that sometimes the B minor that kind of it's hidden, right? It comes in and out of focus from time to time, and you'll never really hear it as B minor. It's really just this constant thread, which everything else kind of you snap onto it as best you can. Um, but because the uh, trajectory of the harmony is, you know, pretty well planned out, it's definitely linear, right? You're going from a very widely spaced chord to something that's really recognizable in contemporary music, the Overton series and just intonation, and compressing it even further. 
that will already suggest this sort of uh, kind of narrative for the musicians to tap into. But then what I do is within each section, you notice that sometimes the section has no divisions, other times it has two divisions or it has three divisions. I then find a way to actually change the pacing of these different sections so that they're mm -hmm. generally having a sense of balance that even though I'm dividing it, I'm maybe shifting the harmony a little bit, I'm not really leaving that sense of where I was. And I think that allows to have a little bit of expressivity in the harmony and in the way the harmonies kind of push and nudge into each other, almost like a sort of pickup or a sometimes something that's being suspended over that resolves. We're hearing uh, cratales and vibraphone and uh, three drums. And the drums to me kind of, it's not that they're out of place, but it just seemed like they're very, they're punctuating a texture that almost doesn't want to be punctuated. So can you talk about the the use of percussion in this piece? Yeah, the the drums are you know, essentially almost acting in a ritual like manner. Right? They are marking the changes yeah. of the divisions in a number of ways. And there's you know a little bit of a pattern here or there, but it uh definitely has the sense that uh, in the first part you have a a higher pitch drum that's marking the beginning of a section and then when you have two drums at another time it's like a shift and yeah i wanted something that was very very different all the electronics are synthesized um, from various types of sine tones and uh, triangle waves and you know that sort of thing very finely tuned and that you know will blend very well with the flutes and the thin uh, you know, spectrum they have and the crotales and the vibraphone that's all going to shimmer together. So I really wanted something that was going to, like you said, punctuate in a way that it kind of shouldn't be. It's like this, this feeling of this thing that's kind of pushing you around a little bit. And yeah. I, I kind of wish the drums were a little bit more resonant uh, personally, but the suggestion is that, you know, if you can tune them, you know, if, if they're, you have the ability or the drums are within the appropriate range, that they should more or less correspond also to the B minor triad. Right. Yeah, that's. I'm. I'm wondering if on the recording, do you remember what kind of? Obviously, they're using toms, but um, toms and a bass drum. Toms and a bass drum. So with the toms, do you remember were they double sided or just single sided toms? I can't remember off the top of my head. I, uh, I think they were single sided. That's that's always a problem with those drums. They never sound good. They never sound resonant. Double sided toms that they use for drum set are actually much better in terms of the resonance they get. It seems like they hold a pitch a little bit better. Sure. And part of the issue with this piece is that the, uh, at least the performance, the ensemble, the Emix ensemble from Germany did a fantastic job. Uh, but we did have very limited time with kind of yeah. acquiring the percussion because this was a performance during a tour uh, that they did in the U.S. So they kind of had to scramble to get the instruments together. They never played yeah. on them before. And, and all those sorts of fun challenges. It's not... Of course, an ideal uh, situation, right? Yeah, <laughs> but um, yeah, I think uh, the percussion definitely is this kind of odd, odd person out, right? It's uh, marking the time, and the and you're right, it doesn't want to be marked, but I do want it to have that sense of kind of slight ebb and flow. And so, if I could just suggest a sort of kind of length of a section and something is a little bit shorter that pushes into something else, 
uh, then I wanted to do that. Yeah, I mean, it reminded me. Um, well, I mean, it's kind of you know, it's a, it's an outlier, and I'm I'm always a big proponent of of outliers in music. You know, something that doesn't quite belong, or something that only happens once, or you know, like it 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 just makes it. They, I mean, it was it was striking to me, and initially it seemed like it didn't belong. But then, as I listened to the piece uh, for longer, I was like, "Oh yeah, yeah, this makes sense. I got it." <laughs> well, yeah, and part of it so, could also be that uh, it doesn't allow it to just turn into a big thing of soup, right? Yeah, exactly. It's just enough to kind of say, "Oh yeah, something just changed," and it always lines up with a change. And the way I change harmonies within another a single section, the drones. You know, stays the same. The three uh, drone pitches in each section, and that's based on the tintinabuli. But what I do is I reinterpret that those three pitches. If you recall, I said that I find out where they intersect with the uh, series stretched or compressed or natural, and uh, then I find some sort of hierarchy by saying that oh, these intersect at a lower point at lower overtones, and here's another intersection of them. And so a great example right. of that that's just you know really clear off the uh, page is, again, that middle section, just because we all um, are at least somewhat familiar with that uh, natural overtone series. So if I have a B minor triad, I can say that, yeah, it locks in uh, pretty well with, uh, with D. You know, D works. It's uh, pretty high up there. Then it locks in even better with G, G some sort of G overtone series. But it locks in really well with obviously a B overtone series. So it's kind of lowering where that uh, collection is intersecting with the harmonies. And it doesn't always go from the least uh, uh, best fit to the most best fit, right? Because that'd be a little bit too predictable. So I do have this, some sections that kind of push down, some that push up, some that kind of oscillate in a kind of sideways S sort of fashion. And I think that with the durations does also help uh, everything.
let's let's talk about either a river or a brook for for organ and live electronics and you know with the last piece i i kind of mentioned the the idea of you know birds flocking or something morphing and i really got it in this piece especially with the electronics you know it's the it's the the perceived motion of the electronics that you see this constant you, you i mean you hear this constantly evolving shape so my question is just how how'd you do that <laughs> All right. Because it's amazing. Oh, thanks. So uh, it's, this actually works in a really similar way where a lot of it focuses on diatonic, you know, pitch classes, diatonic material, and the, uh, the organ part. But what I really wanted to do is find ways that can intersect with uh, other types of spectral techniques. And so uh, in this particular one, I actually... Um, try to figure out how it interacts as combination tones. And so mm. for this, if you actually look at the very end of the score, I have pages and pages and pages of mathematical calculations for how you can generate these um, these combination tones in electronics. And so in the same sort of way as you can have a virtual fundamental of a, uh, of a chord or a pitch class set or, you know, I guess it has to be register specific, right? But uh, you could have something to kind of contextualize that. You can do that with combination tones too. And those are a little bit more kind of gritty. If you think about, you know, they have the intersection of these two signals, uh, mm -hmm. really. So it's like the intersection of two uh, harmonic series. And so the uh, opening chord, for example, yeah, the organ plays this enormous D minor chord, right? But the electronics have this huge yeah. swelling and it's a 64 note chord on top of it. And so I call these halos. And so if, if you imagine that you have eight notes in the um, in the organ part, and if you were to think about combination tones as being plotted on a matrix, uh, I actually wrote an article about this for my Vivier research. Uh, he doesn't do that, but I developed the uh, matrix uh, kind of notation for that. So you have a whole plot of these pitches, and you say, okay, well, here are the eight pitches of the organ. And what I really do is I draw, if there's, it's on a matrix, I select the eight pitches which surround it. Like I'm drawing a halo around each one of those eight pitches. And so, of course, eight by eight, and you get 64. And so what I then have is I have each one of those kind of collections of eight. Those are constantly kind of crossfading between each other. So you have this sense of swirling around this, uh, these more kind of stable, more familiar pitches but that's yeah. constantly swirling and it's kind of it's moving and each one of those halos themselves is also going up and down in volume somewhat randomized process and i really wanted something that had this sense of of breathing i know that's you know all really technical but i wanted to find a way to microtonally inflect the organ i felt like there's so much microtonality built into the organ already anyway with all the stops and registrations there's combination tones already being used so I figured that this could be kind of a way to kind of dig deeper into what's already there. Uh, and they do something that the organ can't do, right? You can't, some organs, of course, yeah. can crescendo, but you can't do it on this on this level and to really uh, play with that. Another thing I played a lot with was uh, turning the organ on and off. So the organist, the very first chord, what they do is they turn the organ on. They then turn it off before they play anything. And so 
the organist just depresses the opening chord and gradually the air falls out of it. And that's what gives it that sort of uh, glissandoing effect in the, in the, in the beginning. It's just the air being kind of released from the, uh, the bellows. Right. Or the, oh, that's cool. Yeah, that's really it, cool. Initially I wanted to actually have the lifting of the key, which does provide some microtonal inflection um, on a mechanical organ. But that's very difficult to do with more than one voice. You can do it with maybe two voices to really change that because it's very nuanced in how you touch it. So ultimately, working with the organist, I decided, hey, let's just turn it off. So he turns it off before he even starts the piece. <laughs> that's awesome. Had you, I mean, is this your first work for organ? It is. And so I talked a lot with the, um, the organist. Um, I, I met him in Germany. He's also a member of the Enex Ensemble. Uh, his name's Matthias, and uh, yeah, we uh, I sent him some sketches here and there, and ultimately, his advice was always, you know, do whatever the hell you want. Uh, don't ask my opinion. <laughs> um, you know, whatever you do, we'll work together and make it work. And so, gradually, I actually just started deleting stuff. I looked at a lot of organ scores, and I felt like many of them just give way too much information, especially considering yeah. every every organ will be different. And so I really wanted to write something that could be playable on any possible organ. And so what's really cool about uh, the software that I wrote on Max is that all the electronics are generated in real time. Uh, they're generated based on an input. If you look in the score, there's actually pitches that are not played. They're pitches that you would use as an input to the software. Mm -hmm. And so you could have something in mean tone tuning, and you would take the frequencies that would correspond to whatever pitches are listed as input in that section use them for the algorithms that are uh, in the different sections. And voila, you have now electronics that will blend perfectly with your mean tone organ. Right. Or your organ that's in a different, you know, based off a different pitch level or something like that. And so really all you have to do is put in the temperament before you actually run the electronics and it does the rest of the work for you. Mm, brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> so um, the, the the th I mean you 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 kind of touched on this. You said you you just kept deleting, you know, deleting things, and that's that was kind of what what struck me. I mean, you made the some. I mean, it's not that I listen to a lot of organ music, wh which I don't, um, but it seemed like you you kind of boiled down the organ to what it does well, you know. Right. Well, well part of that was. Uh... You know, me not wanting to uh, to overdo it. There's this really fast part in the middle, has these thirty second notes, which go on for like three and a half minutes straight. And originally, yeah. I also had like polyrhythms going on in the other hand at the same time. And you know, I had these. Uh, you know, it's just too dense, and then just kind of uh, like you said, just kind of boiling it down. What does the organ do really well? How can I translate that into something that's artistically meaningful for me? Which currently happens to be this intersection of diatonicism and spectralism. And mm -hmm. yeah, finding out uh, you know how can I still be consistent with that language, and uh, it, the piece did end up being you know more monolithic than I had initially intended. It's like in three pillars really, yeah. Uh, especially the last section, which just gets slower and slower and slower uh, as it progresses. That's the most kind of uh, relentless in terms of technique. Like you know, I stay in A minor period for 10 minutes in the organ and the electronics do all sorts of other things. 
Yeah, and that's that's the part we're going to listen to. Yeah. Um, this I you know I I I'm sorry I don't I I don't mean to be uh comparing you know comparing you to anything, but at the same time you know when I'm when I'm listening to this it just it it just creates these these connections I've had and and because I think the the organ is you know an instrument that is largely ignored in in contemporary music and there aren't that many examples i mean well well-known examples of use of the organ so you know when i heard this piece it immediately triggered the things that i have heard recently that i that i thought were interesting i mean in uh in Bjork's uh, Biophilia album, she used the organ quite a bit, and I was like, "Wow, that, that's an that's a really interesting choice for her," you know. Right. And I'm I'm just like I'm I guess I'm I mean of course there are logistical issues with with writing for organ. I mean you have to be the only places it can be played is where where an organ is, of course. But which is why I wanted to I make it if, playable on any possible organ. Yeah. So I mean, what of course there's the huge installed church organ but i mean can this be played on like could you could you even play this on an organ patch i suppose you could uh, as long as you had some control over the stops that you could pull in the different sections or you could mm-hmm. you know suggest in the different sections right um yeah i think you know, that that could definitely work yeah uh, you know and i didn't actually set out to write an organ piece uh, at first what happened was I was in Germany for a performance of a work of Claude Vivier's, his last work. Uh, Emex Ensemble was performing it. It's Klaubstund und Sterblichkeit der Seele. And I, uh, you know, so I went there specifically just to hear them. I had no contact with them prior. I said, hey, I'm coming. But other than that, nothing. And I went to the concert. And after it was over, I went with some of the musicians to get a beer. I'm having a beer. And this organist says, so when are you writing me a piece? Like, well, <laughs> I, I guess... Now, oh, I love that. Yeah, so it's just from going to a concert and uh, you know, talking with musicians and uh, socializing a little bit.
the materials you work with, I mean, based on the, the two pieces we've looked at so far, uh, the materials you work with almost, they almost need a, they need time to exist. So does your music take its shape because of the materials you are using? Or are you using those materials because of an interest in time? That's a good question. Uh, I'd say a little bit of both. I, you know, I've always actually, ever since I've been interested in spectralism, have uh, been trying to find these other ways of you know, dealing with finding different ways to contextualize it. And, you know, true, pure spectral music, whatever that is, does need likewise time to develop. And I think that's kind of an artifact that happens here. But I've always been you know, very interested in slow unfoldings over time. And that has compressed a little bit over recent years. But I think these two works especially are kind of like my return to that much slower glacial pacing where I really want the listener to be able to hear those nuances or hear those swells in the electronics and how those interact with even sustained pitches in the instrumental part. And I do feel like it does alter your sense of time. And especially, of course, in the first piece where you have that uh, the drums are helping to mark things, but it's still very amorphous. Here, I think you get lost even more in either River or Brook. I think you have no idea where you are, temporally speaking. These long, sustained chords in the beginning, and then as soon as things start to pick up in the middle section, that onslaught of 30-second notes just never stops, right? It just goes for three and a half minutes. It's, you know, you really have a zero idea about actually the passing of time and then finally, the last section, things just get slower and slower and slower, like a wheel slowly stopping. And I really want it to be like that momentary sense uh, as a listener that you're like noticing, hey, that's, that's an interesting connection I hadn't thought about there. And you actually have time to consider that. Yeah. I mean, that's when we were, or sorry, when I was, when I was listening, especially to this piece, um, I, was, I was on a train. Uh, I was on a train going to Shanghai and I was listening and, you know, I had, I had, uh, the noise canceling headphones on and I just closed my eyes and I was really getting lost, like you say, in, in time, but I was, I was really lost in the motion, the, you know, the seeming like, I mean, I know the piece is called either a river or a brook. However, you do get that sense of, you know, kind of almost being in water, you know, like floating in in an ocean or or uh, a lake or something and just having that, you know, constant motion of the water giving you this this sense of floating but also, you know, you're not stable and that's what I was getting a lot from the music. Yeah, and I think a lot of it has to do with the way I'm approaching the electronics, right? It's definitely the right. sort of undulating waves uh, that kind of keep kind of toppling over each other, and sometimes they topple more than others. Uh, yeah, this is absolutely a uh, was I might not articulate it like that. That's entirely in line with how I was thinking. Yeah, sing away because it's actually Middle English. Oh, sorry, it's okay. Uh, I call it a rose sing we also. Okay, <laughs> good. I I was looking at that. I was like, hmm, not sure how to pronounce this, but I'll just try. I'll just go for it. <laughs> oh, fifteenth century so, English, right? <laughs> yeah, right. So is that obviously that's where the text comes from? Then 
Right. Uh, so I was approached by the Lorelei Ensemble. Uh, they had a, their first Christmas concert that ever programmed in Boston in last December. And uh, they were programming around old English carols. And so they said, well, use an old English carol text, go, go find one. So I found some anthologies, I went through them, and I was really drawn to this text because it has both the Middle English and it also has Latin text as well. And one thing I work a lot with is a sort of jumbling of text, not so much where you can't always understand it or you can't understand the overall flow, but definitely a little bit of reorganization, sometimes even taking different lines from different stanzas and putting them together. And so one characteristic of this poem happens to be that the last line of every stanza happens to be in Latin. So this is something I definitely played with uh, that I was interested in, uh, this sort of opposition between these languages. And I was just really drawn to this text because of its imagery.
it seems like, I mean, just from what I knew about you before and just talking to you today, it seems like you have a foot in the, you know, the present slash future and a foot in the distant past. Is that accurate? Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, always been interested in, in older music. And I know it's at this point probably a cliche to say I'm interested in you know, medieval music or something like that. But yeah, uh, a lot of my music uh, does intersect either with some sort of text that's very old, like the text that I referenced in Director Step or this particular one here. And, and it's not just for, you know, avoiding copyright, uh, you know, copyrighted texts, <laughs> well, which is an added perk. I'm not going to lie. But, you know, yeah, I, that is. I like searching through these things. I like finding something that you know, was once considered to be true or or a mystical truth or something, but you know, now we might be a bit more skeptical. Of. So, can you talk about with of a rose, um, with that piece? You know, how are you uh, musically bringing it into the modern world? Sure. So, uh, a lot of it has to do with uh, the the voicings uh, and the constant kind of reshuffling of the. Of the of the voices, they are always a sort of leapfrogging, you know, process, and oftentimes with pretty uh, striking dissonances, as far as uh, you know, being in a relatively tempered system goes. So uh, it's not just the dissonance though, but it's also the overall pacing or the breathing, sense of the flow between phrases. There's a lot more space in this piece than the other two pieces. Of course, there's the natural quality of the voice, and you know, things to breathe but uh yeah i really want to explore that kind of tension where they can kind of push into something and then kind of relax back out of it and you see this not just intervalically you see this texturally when they must turn on a unison and then they swell out to a denser chord and come back um, you see it in uh, the polychoral sections where it's almost like a a canon for a measure but then they lock back up the next measure in the downbeat and then they have the same number of articulations, same exact pitches even, but the rhythms are a little bit off, and then they lock back in on the downbeat of the next measure. So this constant sort of kind of blurring uh, and kind of how I do that, not just harmonically and texturally, but also jumping between the voices and knowing that I have individuals singing this so that even if I move the text around uh, between the different voices, just by the fact that they're the different actual singers you're going to get that sense of movement right the, even the spatial yeah. quality they were uh, not spatially standing in the performance uh, other than being in a line but still you have that sense that the music's moving and back and forth within space as well mm -hmm. yeah the one of the things that really struck me was the the very the very opening of it you know because you're you know you're moving from the from a unison to uh, a minor a minor second but also in the in that unison part the rhythmic characteristics of um you know uh putting adding all these voices together you know it's it's when you look at the score it's rhythmically very complex but when you hear it it just gives this kind of shimmering quality i guess yeah uh so that's actually one of the more calculated sections, I knew I wanted the sort of intoning and these different voices. Here I take the Latin text of all the stanzas and I have it presented in the in five voices. And they all are each singing an independent text, but rather than having intone independently, I created a 
a polyrhythmic uh, grid of 16th sequence uh, triplets. And I figured out how many articulations I needed. And I only assigned one uh, syllable to only one articulation so that people are constantly weaving in and out of each other. And they're not moving yeah. in a consistent pattern, like first, second, third, fourth, fifth, you know, first, second, third, fourth, fifth. It's, it's jumbled, which gives the rhythm some life as well. And I wanted to pay attention to the stresses of the words uh, internally. But it's this sense of almost slight nonsense, but then they come together for the uh, the first bit of Latin that you see, or that's actually a refrain. It's uh, Mysterium Mirabile. It's, the, it's kind of a refrain that comes right, right back before Over Rose Sing Away. So it's kind of this hint of this, the way I'm actually approaching it is throughout the entire piece, the entire writing is this kind of intersecting of these voices and then coming together. But even when they go up to that minor second, you see that they each independently resolve at different times as well back to the unison. Yeah. Of the three pieces that we've listened to today, I feel like, I, I mean, I feel like I'm grasping your, your harmonic world. And it was, and that was, interesting to me because the very first piece i ever heard of yours was a piece for percussion and violin which focused almost entirely on timbre texture and density and that was your piece combination and then a series of numbers based on the the tuning right right i mean that was the first piece i i heard of yours but this is the first time we've ever spoken that's crazy to me since we've known each other for something like six years yeah, it's been a while. I've uh, even programmed you know, some of your work when I was running an ensemble yeah. up in Cheyenne. Yeah, it's the first time we've spoken. Still haven't ever met. I know. <laughs> yeah, still haven't met. But I mean, that's that's crazy. I mean, you know, the internet, of course. But but that was uh, that's just interest. That's just very interesting to me. So um, we'll we'll move on to the to the final question, um, which is uh, I ask everyone which is just how did you come to music as something that you wanted to pursue for your life? Because, you know, I, I said earlier, it seems like you have a foot in a couple different, in those two different worlds, the, you know, the, the present and the distant past, but it also seems like you have a very huge connection to mathematics. So I'm wondering, you know, how did, how did music eventually win out from all those? Yeah, that's actually really well put Win out. Um, so I was, uh, as nerdy as this sounds, in high school, I was very much into uh, science and engineering. I competed at all the you know, science fairs, actually won state science fair twice in a row um, in the physical sciences category for a project on how to store hydrogen as a solid inside of first depleted uranium and then uh, lithium. Uh, and then I competed at the international science fair and placed third so I was all set to go be, you know, chemical engineer, something along those lines. Mm-hmm. Uh, I lived in Georgia. Georgia Tech was right around the corner. Uh, but you know, I'd before been... before we get too far away, before we get too far away from that, what were I mean with the storing hydrogen as a solid? What were the, um, you know, the practical uh, or, or what what would that solve in the world? You know, what were you what were you trying to do that would that making hydrogen storing hydrogen as a solid would help i guess well um back then uh then president bush early on had just had an initiative for hydrogen fuel cells for hydrogen cars so i I tapped into that and 
of course, in my presentation, I show that, oh, here, hydrogen in Hindenburg, you know, it explodes, it's a gas. Uh, I showed a clip from Terminator 2 where the guy gets frozen and shatters. So you don't want to know there's a liquid. That was nitrogen, but it's even colder, so it's even worse. Uh, so I said, well, if you store it as a solid, that can actually work. So I actually wrote equations to mathematically optimize what would work the best. I actually was able to get my hands on depleted uranium. It's actually legal for people to, any citizen to hold up to you know, some odd number of pounds of it. Because um, you can just go to Arizona and pick it up off the ground even. Uh, not to, not depleted uranium, just like uranium ore. It's a naturally occurring element, right? So, uh-huh. um, yeah, that combined really well with uh, with hydrogen, but it has twice the density of lead, so it's pretty heavy. So it's not very good for, for vehicles. So the next year I optimized for weight, and I got into um, into lithium, and I did this all in my garage, and you know, scared uh, my parents half to death. <laughs> uh, yeah, but it was great. And you know, I've always had a knack for mathematics, been interested in that. Like I said, I wrote equations there to even optimize for uh, for that sort of stuff. And you know, it, it was you know, would you something I studied in high school? It wasn't like you know anything amazing in terms of something someone could actually use. It wasn't like you know tested in a laboratory or anything. Uh, uh-huh. But still, that's where my interests largely were. But I'd actually been in music for, um, obviously, much longer. Maybe not obviously, but I took piano from the uh, piano teacher across the street uh, when I was in elementary school. My mom was a piano teacher, but I refused to take from her. Uh, <laughs> probably a good thing she probably refused. <laughs> now that's to obvious. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I quit after two years because I just didn't like it. Um, and uh, but I did actually when I was um, might have been my second year, but I actually performed my first composition, which was Yankee Doodle in the right hand, and then the left hand, my left hand, a diatonic inversion of that, starting on the same pitch, which actually works really well because uh, you get a nice five four two chord in the middle, which I had no idea that happened, but uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, so just I've always been interested in kind of that creation aspect with music, even before I even knew I was doing it or even knew I was doing anything um, in that regard. And then I joined a uh, band in middle school as a bassoonist and I had a very supportive band director who would actually uh, sight read anything I brought in. So I'd bring in a fully, you know, band uh, if we call it that, uh, piece, uh, having never written anything. <laughs> I've never and, heard that before. That's yeah. awesome. <laughs> um, and yeah, he'd play it. Uh, he'd have the ensemble play it and be like, oh, oh shit, the clarinets transpose. Uh, and do it again. And then, <laughs> oh, saxophones too. I mean, it, was, it was a very long process. Because I had no teacher. I just had supportive people. And, sure. you know, eventually I started learning actually what I was doing um, in that capacity after writing, you know, 15, you know, fully written out uh, band works. And, uh, yeah, then I got into... Uh, to Indiana for composition, and you know I figured that you know I, regardless of where I went with mathematics or science, and you know, I'd always you know come back to writing music. That's something I would just stay up till two or three a.m. doing in high school. Uh, it's clearly where my passions really lied, and so I figured, well, it, why can't I actually incorporate a lot of these same ideas, or a lot of the same things that interest me about science and mathematics into uh, my music. And pretty much haven't stopped since. Well, that's awesome. That's that's something that I'm, you know, I'm really getting into 
right now is you know the inner the intersections of science and music and how you know not i mean uh, using using science and use and using math not only as an as an inspiration but also actually in the music and i think you do that i i think you do that very well in your music so that's that's uh that's interesting to hear that that's where you that's kind of where you came from um well thank you so much for doing this where can people find you online yeah so find your music they can find me on soundcloud pretty easily but the easiest place to find me is my website which is brian b-r-y-a-n christian.net awesome thanks brian maybe one day we'll actually meet in person (laughs) maybe one day hey thanks so much rob Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.